invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews with me. We'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 8 this morning. And there are Bibles in the pew in front of you if you don't have one with you. And if you're looking at one of those blue pew Bibles, you can find our passage on page 1107. 1107 is what we're looking at today. Continuing on in the letter to the Hebrews. We've been going for a while now and we are... We are at a significant point this morning, looking at chapter 8, which I'll explain in a little bit. But Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to be looking at all 13 verses. So hear the word of the Lord. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me again real quick? Father, we've acknowledged our weakness this morning, and I just want to acknowledge my own as I come to this text. God, I pray for your help now. Help me to unfold this word. I pray that in the unfolding of your word, you would give light and life. So help me to speak faithfully and true and help our ears to hear what is good and right about our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the most important words that you need to know in order to understand the Bible is the word covenant. Covenant. Now, we don't talk a lot about covenants nowadays, at least in the world at large, 
But it's a really, really important concept throughout the Bible. So first we need to ask, well, what is a covenant? Now there are different kinds of covenant found in the Bible, but a general way of speaking, a covenant, one writer said, is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. Okay, so that's what a covenant is. We've got to get this squared away in our heads. You've got a relationship. Okay, it's not, it's not just a contract. It's not just an agreement. It's a relationship where two parties are bound to each other by promises. Okay? Now, we don't have a lot of examples today, like I said, but we do have one. The best example we have today, as you probably know, is marriage. Marriage is a covenant when a man and a woman stand before others in a church or wherever they are and they make their vows to each other, what they are doing is making a covenant. They are forming a relationship that is bound together by promises. That relationship doesn't exist until they make those vows. They're, they're not husband and wife until the vows are made. So when they say, they promise to have and to hold, to love and to cherish, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness or in health, till death do us part, those covenant promises define their relationship and how the two of them are going to relate to one another. Okay? Well, all throughout the Bible, God has always related to his people through covenants as well. People have always been connected to God through these relationships built on promises. And the covenants are where God promises, hey, here's what you can expect of me. He tells us, here's what I'm going to do. How can we know what to expect of God? He tells us in his covenants. And he tells us what he expects of us. The relationship where both sides are making promises. Now there are other covenants in the Bible that we don't have time to get into this morning. But there's two that stand out and kind of tower above the storyline of the Bible. So you've got to understand these two. In fact, your Bible is organized around these covenants. So whether you know your Bible inside out or you have no idea when you open it up, if you open it up, you'll see in the table of contents there's two main sections, an Old Testament and a New Testament. The reason that is is because testament is just another word for covenant. So the Bible itself is structured around an old covenant and a new covenant. It tells us that in the old covenant, that's what life looked like under that agreement, that relationship with God. It's where the old covenant life took place and where there was a promise, hey, one day there's a new one coming. So then you, you turn forward to the new, the new Testament and you see the new covenant coming in Jesus. And we're told how to live as part of the new covenant people of God. So this idea is really important. In today's text, we're going to see why that old covenant wasn't enough. Why is there a second part of our Bibles? Why, why, are we, why are we not Jewish? Why are we Christians and not Jews? Why is there not just an Old Testament in our Bibles, but a new? But it's not just going to tell us why the old covenant wasn't enough. It's going to say, what's better about the new? New is better in this case, and so what's better? And we're going to break it down just two big points, Okay. So the two big points we're going to look at is in verses 1 to 6, we're going to see that our priest ministers in a better place. A better place. And then in verses 7 to 13, he also has better promises. So better place, 
better promises. Two places we're going this morning. So let's look first at better place. Now, I've mentioned this before, but the thing I love about Hebrews, one of the many, is that our author tells us what the main point is. I cannot tell you how helpful that is. Rather than you try to figure it out, you're looking at 13 chapters saying, what do I think? He said, I'll tell you what the main point is. Verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. So if you remember, if you've been tracking with us the last few weeks, he's been telling us all about the kind of priest Jesus is. All throughout chapter 7, he showed us how he's a priest like Melchizedek. And then unpacked, what does that mean? He showed us. At the end of chapter 7, in verse 26, he even said, it's fitting, it's appropriate, it's right, it's necessary that we should have such a high priest. What kind of high priest? One who's sinless, who's exalted, who's guaranteed by God, who lives forever. He says, that's what you need. We need that kind of priest. It's fitting. Now, chapter 8 starts with him saying, the whole point is that in Jesus, we have him. We have such a high priest. He listed all these things that we need. And he says, guess what? He's here. We have a high priest. And then he spells it out more. He's not just looking backwards when he says this. He says, let me tell you more about what kind of high priest we have. He says, we have one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places. In the true tent that the Lord set up. Not man. Okay, so just a couple sentences there couple of verses, I should say, but he, he tells us a lot about the kind of high priest Jesus is right here. So what kind of high priest is this Jesus? Well, first, he's one who rules as king. He rules as king. Why do I say that? Well, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. That's where a person of authority sits. The king is obviously the one on the throne, and God is on the throne, and Jesus is ruling with him at his right hand as his chosen king. So we know that this priest has all power and authority. He's ruling. Second thing we see about our high priest is he is one who has finished his work of sacrifice. How do we know that? Well, because verse 1 says he's seated at God's right hand. That's really important. We're going to talk more about this in chapter 10. But see, the other priests, the Old Testament priests, they didn't get to sit down. When they were on the job, they didn't get to sit down. Why? Because their job was never done. Listen to what chapter 10 says. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But, chapter 10 says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The old priests never got to sit down because the work was never done. They kept doing the same things over and over and over, which could never take away their sin. And this morning, some of you know too well what that's like. You keep trying the same things over and over and over again to, to, to get your life together, to be good enough, to clean up, to get, to get things straight. 
or to, to, to undo that wrong you've done, to, to get your record wiped clean, to get right with God. You go back to it over and over. You're still standing, offering the same sacrifices, trying and trying to get rid of the sin you know you have. You do it again and again, but it's never enough. But when Jesus, when Jesus made his sacrifice for sin, he sat down. Why? Because it was enough. It could take away sin. Sin was taken care of and paid for once for all. So friends, this morning, even as we're just jumping in here, right up front, I'm begging you, would you see Jesus in verse 1? Would you see Jesus seated? Because his sacrifice has been made, and as he said, it is finished. Come to him this morning. Stop going back to your same rituals and practices and efforts and labors and come to Jesus and rest in his finished work as your priest. That's the second thing we see. Third thing you see about what kind of priest Jesus is, is that he serves in a better place. A better place. Talks about ministering in a holy place. Now in verses two through five, what we're going to do is almost as though if those three things were listed and that last one has kind of a link, if we're looking at a computer, it's almost like the author clicks that link and says, tell me more about this better place situation. So we're going to click that link with him and see more about what does it mean that Jesus serves in a better place. Well, the Old Testament priests, they too would serve in holy places, in the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle was a tent. That was kind of the first iteration of the, the place they met with God. Then it was replaced later by a permanent structure called the, the temple. So the tabernacle, this is where the priests would offer the blood of their sacrifice and enter into God's presence in these holy places. So we're going to learn more about them in chapter 9. He's kind of giving us little windows into where he's going here. So we're going to learn more about him. But here what he wants us to see is that when Jesus goes into these holy places, he goes into better ones. Why were they better? What was, what was different about the holy places he goes to versus theirs? He says, because they were in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Okay, now what would a priest do when he goes into these holy places? Well, look at verse 3. For every high priest is appointed, why? To offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest, namely Jesus, also to have something to offer. So he's saying, look, we know the role of the priest was to be a mediator between God and men. That men get to God through this priest. That he's their point of access and God speaks through them. So they're the mediator. And the main way the priest carried out this role of mediator was through offering sacrifices. Sacrifice is what had to happen to cover the sins of the people. That doesn't happen, nobody gets to be near God. Okay, sacrifices were needed. So when Jesus enters the holy place, it says, well, if he's a priest, he also has to have something to offer. That's something to offer. That something was his own blood to pay for the sins of the people. The sacrifice that can actually take away sins. So that's what Jesus comes into this different and better place with his own blood as a sacrifice. Now verse 4 says, well, now if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. What is he saying there? 
He's saying, look, it's a good thing that Jesus ministers as a high priest in a better place because if he were ministering as a priest here on earth, he wouldn't even qualify to be a priest because everything about those priests, if you remember, is based on law. They were qualified to be priests based on what the law required. They offered the sacrifice that the law required and they did it in a place that the law required. But Jesus is a better kind of priest who offers a better sacrifice in a better place. So that's why he's saying it's a good thing for us that he's in a better place. Now verses 5 and 6 explain how the place Jesus ministers is better than where the other priests minister. It says they, these other priests, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So when these priests, when they did all their priestly duties, their sacrifices, their gifts, their offerings, their prayers, their intercession, they did it all in a man-made tent, like I mentioned, called the tabernacle. And the people would have seen that as the most sacred place on earth. Rightly so. That's where the presence of God dwelt among men. But now he's saying, as important as that was, as significant as that was, it was just a shadow. Merely a copy of the real thing. We all know that like copies can be impressive, but the point of a, knowing the real thing is you can look at it, the copy, and say, oh, wow, that's, that pales in comparison. When I was a kid, for a while, I actually believed I'd been to the Eiffel Tower because I went to King's Island. If anybody knows what I'm talking about, they have a, a scale replica of the Eiffel Tower. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe this. I, some people got to go all the way to France. I went to Cincinnati and I got to be at the Eiffel Tower. Now, having seen, I still haven't been to Paris, but seeing pictures, it's like, oh, that pales in comparison. It look, I mean, it's built to look like it. it. There's a lot of similarities, but going to Kings Island is not the same thing as standing before the Eiffel Tower in Paris. And that's just a really tiny example of saying, hey, these tabernacle, this tabernacle, it's a copy. When God told him to look at the pattern that says there's the real one out there, look at that and make something like it. But it's not the real thing. It's like it. And that word, when he says make it according to the pattern that you see, the word is actually type. Make it according to the type that you see. Now, Maybe that triggers a thought from last week. When we talked about Melchizedek, we said he was a type. A type. And I defined a type as something or someone that God uses to point us forward to Jesus. To help us understand something about him. So Melchizedek was this king, priest. And so he was a type saying, hey, there's something about him that's going to help you understand what Jesus is like when he comes. So He's in the Old Testament. He's going to help you understand Jesus. In the same way, we're seeing here that this tabernacle is a type. There's something about this tabernacle and what goes on in it that's meant to point us to Jesus and say, hey, you need to get this thing so that you can get Jesus when he comes. This is like a pointer. It's a clue. It's a, it's a foreshadowing of what's about to come. So what does the tabernacle help us understand about Jesus? How does it help us? Well, 
What do we know about the tabernacle? We know that in it was the presence of God. And there was this, it was sacred space. People, you couldn't just stroll into the tabernacle. Like, you just walked in the doors this morning. That's not how you went to the tabernacle. Right? There was sacred space where the presence of God was, and it was kept separate from sinful people. You did not go in there. Only the high priest could go there. One guy, once a year, gets to go into the sacred space. And that one person could only go in with the blood of sacrifice for sins. This one priest could go in with the blood of the sacrifice for sins and make atonement for the people. This is all what we see in this tabernacle. So God sets up this system, this structure, and he's saying, hey, do you guys get it? I'm, I'm, I'm giving the Giving you the basics, so to speak. I'm letting you ride, but you got training wheels. All right, so there's a space where I am. Sinners can't come into it. Only one high priest can come, and only if he brings a sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of the people. You tracking? Okay, now I think you've got categories so that when I send my son, you say, oh, okay. I see what you're doing here. Because that's what Jesus did. But he didn't enter into a copy He didn't enter into a shadow. Jesus went into the reality. He went into the presence of God himself with a better sacrifice. He's a better priest with a better sacrifice serving in a better place. That's what we're seeing already. But now that's not the only way that Christ's priesthood is better. Look at verse 6. It says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Why? Since it is enacted on better promises. That's key. Since it's enacted on better promises. We're going to look at those better promises. But first, we need to see, why do we need a new one in the first place? We had a covenant, right? Or there was a covenant. The old covenant. What was wrong with it? Why couldn't we still have kept that one? Last week, we talked about how the fact that God promised a new kind of priest indicated that the Levitical priests were never intended to be the full and forever answer. So in Psalm 110, when God says, hey, there's going to be another priest coming, not like the ones you have. He's going to be different. He's coming. And as soon as that promise is made, it tells us, oh, there's something insufficient about this. The fact that God says another one's coming and he's different tells me I need something different. This one can't get the job done. They were only meant to get us through to the true answer. Well, now he uses that same logic. The same logic that said when God promised a new priest tells me there's something wrong with the current priest. He says, well, here's why God would promise a new covenant. Something was wrong. Look at verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. In other words, he says, look, if the old way of relating to God was working, why would we need a new way? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. So clearly, something was broken with the old system. Something was broken with the old covenant. But what was it? What was broken? Look at verses 8 and 9. For he finds fault with them when he says, 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Okay, now let's back up a second. Let's, we need to get some context. Because he's, what he's talking about here is actually, this is a quote. You probably see that in your Bibles. That verses 8 through 12 are a quote from Jeremiah 31 in the Old Testament. Now what you need to know about that part of the Bible, about that section in Jeremiah, is that it was written in a very dark and low point in the history of Israel, in the history of God's people. See, they had this old covenant, right? This old covenant was the one that God made with Moses at, in Israel at Mount Sinai. So even if you don't know your Bibles well, you've probably heard of the Ten Commandments movie. Moses goes up on the mountain, there's thunder and lightning. God gives them the law. There's this new, or there's this understanding with the people that they would be his and he would be their God. Now in this covenant, God promised Israel glorious blessings. Glorious blessings if they'd obey him and keep his covenant. You see that over and over again. If you keep my covenant, if you keep my covenant, if you keep my covenant, oh, here's what's going to happen. But he also promised severe curses if they disobeyed and broke the covenant. Well, the story of the Old Testament is the story of the people breaking the covenant again and again and again. It's God in his mercy sending prophets, prophet after prophet after prophet. Do you know what the prophets were? The prophets were basically covenant prosecutors. They were coming and making cases against the people saying, look, here's the law God gave you that you're supposed to follow. Here's how you're breaking it. Dink, 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 dink. Now turn back. Turn back. There's still time. You've broken it, but turn back and he'll be merciful. And time after time after time, the people ignored God's warnings. So finally, God brought the covenant curse that he promised. Exile. That wasn't an arbitrary, like, ooh, the people have really done it this time. I'm fed up. What can I do to stick it to them? I know I'll send them into another land. No, God said way back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, he says, I'm going to try to get you back. I'm going to do this. That doesn't work. I'll do this. That doesn't work. I'll do this. And at the end of the day, if you still insist on rebelling and you won't turn back to me, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you into exile. You will be sent out of your promised land. That was a covenant curse. So go back to the question we asked a second ago. So why did we need a new one? What was wrong about the old covenant? What was broken? The answer is people. People were what was wrong with the old covenant. After God says, took Israel by the hand and led them out of Egypt. Keep that in mind. Don't think old covenant means it was just rules and law, no grace. The old covenant was gracious because that happened first. They didn't deserve it. God says, I'm going to take you by the hand, sinful people, lead you out of Egypt, then I'll give you my law. So God took them out of the land of Egypt by the hand. And what did they do? They did not continue in the covenant. 
they disobeyed. They turned their backs on God. After he rescued them from the bottom of the barrel and gave them this new identity and gave them this land and these promises and did all this, they're like, no, we got this, God. Thank you. They disobeyed. They broke the covenant. Like a spouse breaking a marriage covenant, they ran after other lovers over and over. The problem with the old covenant was the people didn't keep it. And now they were facing consequences for breaking the covenant. That's the backdrop of Jeremiah. The backdrop of Jeremiah 31. Okay? And that's when God gave Jeremiah this promise of a new covenant. Jeremiah's message came right in the middle of the time when Israel's lives hit rock bottom. Their sin had caught up to them. And now everything in their lives was devastated. Everything was changing and not for the good. Right at their lowest point, when they had blown it for the last time, and now there was no escaping the judgment they deserved, when they were at their most messy and broken, and finally everything was crashing down around them, and they know there's no way out. God sends a message of hope through Jeremiah. He says, hey, exile won't be the last word. Yeah, things are horrible now. And you've brought it on yourself. But guess what? I'm going to give you a better covenant. This old one didn't work. But the new one will. So he offers them a new relationship with the people that's going to be different and better than the old so what would be different? Like, why, what would be different so that we don't just repeat the same problem? Okay, let's try it again. Let's draw up a new one. Promise to keep it. What's to prevent the new one from not going the way of the old? What would be different, he says, is that this relationship would be founded on better promises. And what are those better promises? Three things that he tells us here. These are the three things we're going to look at in the next paragraph. Better promises are inner transformation, intimate knowledge, and entire forgiveness. Inner transformation, intimate knowledge, and entire forgiveness. So first, inner transformation. Look at verse 10. This is God speaking. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. And write them on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. So the main problem with the old covenant was that all the laws were outside of us. Through the law, God told us all the ways we should live in order to be happy and holy and pleasing to him. We had them written down for us on tablets of stone by God himself. So we had these all. They were written down, but they were all outside us. And the problem was inside. Because our hearts were still sinful and broken. So the answer to our rebellious hearts was not just giving us rules to follow. The answer was not giving us six steps to how to be more religious. We knew the right things to do. We had the law. The problem wasn't that we didn't know. The problem is that we didn't do. The problem wasn't mainly a knowing problem, but a wanting problem. See, the law could only check our behavior. What we needed was something that could 
change our hearts. So what did God promise in the new covenant? This time, he says, I'm not going to write the law on tablets outside of you. I'm going to write them on your hearts, inside you. He's going to change the way we live by changing us on the deepest level possible. So here's the thing about people. All kinds of people. Christians, non-Christians. People always do what we want. That's just human nature. You do what you want. And the problem of sin is that we want the wrong things. It's not that you do what you want. That's just part of how God made people to be wanters whose wanting affects their doing. The problem with sin is that we want the wrong things. Our desires have been corrupted and our wanters, our hearts, have been broken. So what we want is the sin that hurts us and will one day destroy us. Like an addict who just says, I want this thing. You're like, you're looking at it saying, you want the thing that's killing you. Yeah, that's sin. But we're addicted. We want it. We crave it. And so we do anything we can to get it. So God says in this new covenant, I'm not just going to tell them, don't do that. Instead, I'm going to fix their wanting. I'm going to give them not new rules outside them. I'm going to give them new desires inside them. So now when God saves us, he doesn't just tell us how to live. He gives us hearts that want to live that way. He doesn't coerce us and say, you better or else. He he changes us so that now it is a delight to do the law of God. We still do what we want. You need to see that. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean you stop doing what you want and you start just suppressing every desire. No, 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 no. You do what you want even more so. But now what you want is what God wants you to want. What's changed is what we want. So when you become a Christian... You start wanting things you've never wanted before. It's strange. It's weird. Suddenly, you want to read the Bible. Like some of you, some of you became Christians when you were very little, and so maybe the transition wasn't as stark. Some of you became a Christian when you were an adult, and you can testify to this, that you, you may have thought, that's weird people read this really old book. I'm not a reader. Why would I ever spend time? And then you, you met Jesus, and you're like, I can't get enough of this. What is it about this book? Suddenly you find yourself wanting to go to church. That was weird for me. I grew up going to church every Sunday. I did not grow up wanting to go to church. I grew up going to church. That's a difference. And then part of my conversion was I started being around Christians and watching them and saying, hey, they're my age. I was in college. Their parents weren't around. And they still wanted to go to Christian things. That's strange. But when you become a, when you get new life, you want to be around other people who have new life. When you become a Christian, suddenly you want to sing songs about Jesus. It doesn't matter if you don't like to sing, if you have a horrible voice. When there is words that declare truths that have changed your lives, you can't help but sing. You want to talk to God in prayer. You want to be around other people and say, like, tell me what Jesus is doing in your life. Remind me of what's true. Encourage me. Help me me keep my eyes fixed on him. You, You even want to tell them when you mess up and you say, like, hey, I'm not in a good spot right now and I need you to help me come back. Your desires change. 
Not only that, sin starts to lose its attraction. That sin that was once so sweet begins to taste more and more sour to you. Now, you still occasionally take a bite, but it tastes more and more sour. You lose your taste for it. How does all that change happen in a Christian? God puts his law in our minds and writes it on our hearts. He transforms us inwardly all the way down. He doesn't just give us new rules. He gives us new life, new desires to walk in his ways. That's why Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who is at work in you, both to will, to will, and to work for his good pleasure. To will and to work. To desire and to do. To want his ways and to walk in his ways. And it says God's doing that in you. He doesn't just give you the rules and say, now do it. He gives you the rules and gives you new life and says, I'm going to do it in you. He puts his law in us and empowers us to live it out. Now let me draw two applications for us on that better promise of inner transformation. Two applications. The first is, I debated about how to, how to phrase this, and I'm just going to say it. Some of you just want religion. If you're honest right now, you hear that and you say, that's, that's a bit much. I'm not into all that. Look, what I'm after, why I showed up this morning is, just tell me what's right and wrong. Give me a list of what to do and what not to do, and I'll take it from there. I'm, a good, I'm good at following guidelines. Give me instructions, I'll live the life. That's what you're looking for, is you're wanting rules and guidelines and six steps to being a better fill in the blank. But what God is offering you this morning is not six steps to anything or a new set of guidelines. The reason he's not offering that is because we tried that and it didn't work. That's the old covenant. We need something better. We need God not just to tell us how to live, but to change us so that we want to live that way and so that we can live that way. We need something that goes all the way down deep and transforms us inwardly. Now, some of you this morning, some of us, I should say, feel so stuck. You hear this and you feel so stuck this morning and your heart says, yes, I want that, but I just can't change. Change sounds so good. I don't want to keep doing that. I want my life to look different. I want to do this more and do this more and not do that anymore. But I, I can't. I'm stuck. I've, you don't know how hard I'm trying, Pastor. You don't know the steps I'm doing. And I go back to it and I do it again and again and again, but I can't change to you, I would say, you're right. You can't change. But you know what the good news is? In Jesus, you can be changed. God can transform you. And that's the good news of the new covenant, is that God says, I'm not just asking you to do it, I'm going to do it in you. I'm going to do it. Do you notice the I wills in this passage? I will, I will, I will, I will. God's going to do it. You just say, God, I can't. Will you? And he comes in and does it in us. 
He takes the kind of person he wants us to be and he works it into us. And friends, here's the good news. If you are in Christ, whether you feel it or not, you are being changed. Right now, this morning, even if you feel blah and you feel like uh, it's not been a good week, right now, 2 Corinthians 3.18 is true and says, when we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Are being transformed. It's not a one-time, oh, I'm done. He says every day, over and over, I'm making you different. So if you've run to Jesus and trusted in him alone, friend, you are being transformed. You might feel stuck, but you're not. You're being changed to look more and more like the Jesus who rescued you. That is the better promise of inner transformation that comes in the new covenant. Second better promise is that we would have intimate knowledge of God. Look at verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. See, in the Old Covenant, the people of Israel, the covenant community, it was a mixed community, meaning some people knew God and some didn't. Some believed, some didn't. So what's new about the New Covenant? He says in the New Covenant community, the people will all know God, from the least to the greatest. Every single person who's part of the New Covenant knows God. It's not a privilege that's reserved only for super Christians or the best of the best. That's why he goes out of his way. He says, from the least of them to the greatest. He didn't need to say that, but God knows you and I. He knows that we'd say, yes, I'm sure for for that guy over there. And she's, yeah, she's a really good Christian, I bet. He says, "If if you are in the new covenant, you know me. You know God. You know how sometimes people ask you, hey, do you know so-and-so? And And you think, and it it clicks, and you're like, I don't know how many times I've had to say this. Like, I don't know them, but like, I'm aware of who they are. Like, I, I, we have a friend in common. Like, I've, when I've talked to this friend, he mentions that person. So, yeah, kind of. They're a friend of a friend, I guess you'd say. In the New Covenant, what he's saying is, there is no more friend of a friend with God. You never have to rely on someone else's relationship with God, saying like, well, I I mean, I know who he is, but I know him and he knows God. So I kind of know a little bit about him. No more. If you're in the new covenant, you know God. You know God. And I fear that sometimes we treat that language like a metaphor. That when we say we have a relationship with God, or that we know God, we think, yeah, kind of, or yeah, metaphorically. That's not metaphor. In the new covenant, you know God. As surely as you know your mom, as surely as you know your spouse, as surely as you know your friend, you can know God. And if you're here visiting and wondering, what is this church all about? That's it. What we're after is we want to know God. John 17 says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. It says, life is knowing God, and that's what we're after. We want to know him and know him better. We want to grow in the grace and knowledge of God. We want to be increasing in our knowledge of him. 
We want to know God better because there is nothing better than knowing him. Friends, there is no father so tender. There is no king so powerful. There is no savior so strong, no shepherd so gentle, no friend so faithful, no counselor so wise, no rock so reliable, no one so good and loving and kind and gracious as God. So if you don't know him, can we introduce you to him? You can come to him through Jesus. That is our passion. We want to know God and we want you to know God because he's worth knowing. We want you to know the God we love. Maybe you're here and you think you can't know him. That there's no way someone like you with your past and your baggage could know God. Not really. No way he'd want a relationship with you. All your sin and your mess. The things you've said and thought. The, the th- as we sang earlier, the things you've done and left undone. No way. Not you. And that's where the third and final promise of the new covenant comes in. Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Friends, don't miss that. When God makes that promise, he knows who he's making this covenant with. He's under no false pretenses that the people he's making a covenant with have their act together and are really squeaky clean and shiny. He's not surprised or shocked by your sin. When you do something, he's, he doesn't, he's not, he's not. How do I know? Because he made the promise of the new covenant to deal with sin. He knew he was making a covenant with sinners. That's why at the core of the new covenant is God's merciful forgiveness of our sins. The old covenant, all it could do is show us just how sinful we are and how deeply we need mercy. But the promise of the new covenant is that, yeah, while your sins are many, his mercy is more. For us to have that real relationship with God, where we know him intimately and enjoy him the way we're made to, we need to have our sins taken care of fully and finally. The old covenant couldn't do that. But now God promises to be merciful toward our iniquities and remember our sins no more. How can he do that? Because Jesus is our high priest. As our high priest, he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice in our place. All our sin was put on him. And he paid for every wrong thought, word, and deed. His blood bought our forgiveness. And because of our perfect priest's perfect sacrifice, we are perfectly forgiven. And Christian, this morning, I just want to ask, do you know that? Do you know that you were perfectly forgiven if you were in Christ? If this covenant is yours, then on the basis of Jesus' blood, you are perfectly forgiven. Not just of the sins that you did a long time ago. Not just the things you did before you became a Christian. You're forgiven of your sins from this week. From this morning. You're forgiven of that sin that even when I bring up this topic, that thing that comes to your mind, that's hanging over you like a cloud. You're forgiven of that sin that discourages you. That sin that when you think about it makes you feel ashamed and embarrassed about. That sin that you're, you're afraid to admit is even really a sin to yourself because you know that if you did, then you'd have to deal with it and you're not sure you can. 
that sin that you justify and make excuses about. If you are in the new covenant by faith in Jesus Christ, hear God say to you, I will be merciful toward your iniquities and I will remember your sins no more, including that one and that one and that one. Friends, do you see how good God is? What love could remember no wrongs we've done? Though he's omniscient, he knows everything, but he counts not their sum. He doesn't keep track and say, another one, another one, another one, another one. He counts not their sum. Instead, they're thrown wholly into a sea without bottom or shore. They're not coming back. Your sins have been taken away as far as the east is from the west. God is not just keeping them back, waiting for you to slip up and say, hey, remember that time he's not going to use them against you? They're gone because of Jesus, the high priest of our new covenant. Because we have this new covenant, the old one's obsolete. Verse 13. Speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And friends, here's where it's all headed. Where is it all going? How does it all culminate? Look back up to verse 10. There's one, there's one part I skipped over. After he promises us inner transformation, God promises this. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That was the promise of the first covenant back in Exodus 19. But people broke that covenant. So does that mean God scrapped that plan? No. God's purposes never changed. So he promised it again when he made a new covenant. And this time, this covenant, he vowed to make sure it would happen because this covenant would be built on better promises. He would see that his people made it all the way home to be with him forever. How? Through inner transformation, through intimate knowledge and entire forgiveness. And guess what? We know how this covenant works out. Revelation 21 tells us, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Friends, the new covenant works Because God himself holds us fast. And God himself gets us home. How does he do it? A better priest with better promises. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is our high priest. Thank you for your covenant that he sealed with his own blood. Lord, that you have promised these things to us. They're not just pipe dreams or wishful thinking of maybes and hope so's. These are promises of God Almighty saying, I will. So Lord, we we thank you for the fact that you change us from the inside out. We thank you that we know you. God, help us know you more. And we thank you that our sins, not in part, but the whole, have been nailed to the cross and we bear them no 
more. We thank you for all this work and we pray, would you keep working it in us and through us for your glory and our good. And all God's people said, amen.